It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. All right, today is June the 10th in 2023, and my guest is Michael Humer. Mike is professor for philosophy at the University of Boulder, Colorado. He's the author of more than 80 academic articles in epistemology, ethics, metaethics, metaphysics, and political philosophy, as well as the author of 10 amazing books, which I'll mention shortly. This episode is very special to me. I read almost all of what Michael Humer wrote. Maybe not all the academic articles, but the books, the blog posts. It's fair to say that Mike's thinking is the biggest influence on my thinking and my work. In the words of Brian Kaplan, Michael Humer is the best living philosopher, possibly the best who ever lived. Michael Humer, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for that very generous introduction there. Good to be here. Michael, in this episode, I want to introduce your work to my listeners. And I want to do it in the order of my top three books that I recommend relating to the themes of this podcast. And these books are, and I could re recommend listeners to read it in that order, Knowledge, Reality, and Value, Justice Before Law, and The Problem of Political Authority. So the main part of today's conversation will be about why and how to think clearly. That's what I learned from Knowledge, Reality, and Value. Then ethics, specifically when it comes to the legal system. And finally, the deeper-seated moral problems with state authority, something that affects entrepreneurs, which are listeners to this podcast, through business regulation, which is kind of the connection I want to draw. Before we go into those, I'd also like to mention other books. Paradox Lost, I really loved. It's about philosophical paradoxes. Approaching Infinity is kind of what my VC fund is named after, Infinita Fund. And it's about paradoxes that have to do with infinity. Both were just very deeply pleasurable reads, although they have very little to do with my work and my life. I just like the pleasure of reading and of thinking more clearly by reading the books, especially the readability of it. Your writing is just extremely clear and easy to read. Finally, Dialogues and Ethical Vegetarianism convinced me to become a vegetarian. There's a couple more, of course, and a fantastic blog called Fake News. Michael, anything else you'd like listeners to know about you and your work? Oh, I'll just buy my books and, and read my blog. So let's dive right into Knowledge, Reality, and Value. The subtitle is A Mostly Common Sense Guide to Philosophy. What is it about and why should people read it? Oh, uh, to get an introduction to philosophy. <laughs> and, you know, why, why should you study philosophy, you might, you might wonder. Uh, basically, I think, you know, most people are sort of born confused, or everyone really. Uh, the natural human way of thinking is not very clear. And 
philosophy sort of addresses kind of the most interesting fundamental questions. And by studying philosophy, and particularly, I mean, analytic philosophy, you become able to think more clearly. I like to give an analogy that, you know how when you're dreaming sometimes, you're having thoughts that don't make any sense, but you don't notice that they don't make any sense. And then when you wake up, you realize that that, that was just incoherent, that you didn't notice at the time. Okay, so that's how most people are when they think about philosophical questions, if they haven't studied philosophy, right? They will... They think things that just simply do not make any sense, and they don't notice that they don't make any sense, right? And so studying philosophy is sort of like waking up in the sense of becoming more aware, becoming more aware of, of what makes sense and what doesn't. Yeah, but even if you study philosophy, right? I studied philosophy and read philosophy for more than 15 years, but you still sometimes discover, hey, you always believed this argument, or you weren't even questioning something that like leads you down to many other confused beliefs, right? Yeah. Yeah, that happens at the point. Like there are a lot of things that people simply don't reflect about that are worthy of reflection. So like, you know, you mentioned my book about vegetarianism. My impression is that an enormous number of people never think about it. Um, they never think about like what they're eating and how there might be ethical implications. And in fact, even after they hear that there are these vegans and vegetarians who are abstaining from meat, And even after they hear that it's for ethical reasons, they still don't think about what the ethical reasons might be. <laughs> so I think there are a bunch of people whose initial reaction is like, they have an emotional reaction to vegans, okay? Not to veganism, to vegans. In other words, they see the vegan and like, uh, you know, he's wearing whatever tie-dye and like has long hair that's not combed or something. And then they think, oh, so veganism is bad. And Most people yeah. don't also don't live according to what they see as a moral insight, right? So they live according to like what others do. There's like pro-social bias or authority bias and things like that, right? Yeah, that's right. So like most of the time you think that other people are ethical because they're not attacking you and stealing your stuff and things like that. Uh, what's actually happening is that they just care about social conventions. It turns out that people care more about social conventions than morality. And the way this emerges is if you finally get somebody to confront, you know, how they have some unethical behavior, if the behavior is still in accordance with the social conventions, they keep doing it. You can even have people admit that, you know, like eating meat is wrong, but they have no intention of stopping. Yeah. And you're very obviously questioning many of these very commonly held beliefs that we do just out of social conformity. But at the same time, there's also a case in favor of social conformity, right? Right. Well, yeah, most of the social conventions are not immoral. So if the social convention is immoral, then you should not follow it. But if it is not immoral, you know, but it might just be useless, but usually you should still kind of follow it in order to signal other people that you are not out of control. Right. So you're supposed to say certain sort of things to be polite, like, Oh, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Okay. And if you don't say the right thing, but you say something that's just like too far out of the norm and um, people start to suspect that you're crazy or something like that. Right. And, and it's not totally unreasonable either. Right? So like people who don't follow social conventions, well, they might also steal and like um, beat you up and lie and whatever, because the social conventions are the main reason why people are not abusing each other. 
So if you signal to other people that you don't follow social conventions, then they are going to completely reasonably fear that you might, you know, attack them. Yeah, which is part of the reason why people like entrepreneurs, like myself and many of our listeners that do things that are very different from what the social convention is are often seen as very skeptically. And that's partly for good reason, because people who do something that's against social norms are often not having good intentions. So people kind of have this presumption, which means yeah. as a result that you need to think very deeply and hard about what you're doing, right? And if it's justified and based on a correct beliefs that you're going against social conventions. That makes me think of, um, you know, advice that you should give to people. Like if you're selling some radical new idea that you have and like trying to get people to invest or whatever, you should show up to the meeting wearing a very conventional suit and with very conventional and controlled mannerism. They should not start acting wild or anything <laughs> or whatever, you know, maybe even like, you know, cut your hair so that it looks short and, and neat. Back to the book, what is philosophy as opposed to science? Yeah, so they do sometimes um, deal with the same questions. Like, you know, like, was there a beginning of time? That's like a thing that philosophers and scientists have both written about. And I guess the difference is that science usually involves specialized experience as evidence. So they will do experiments very frequently. Um, not all scientists do experiments. But, um, you know, so like a lot of them do experiments, which is to gather evidence that an ordinary person wouldn't have because... It's evidence that you would only get in a very specialized circumstance. We have to do very specific things in order to have this observation. But there's also things like, oh, I don't know, archaeology. They don't really do experiments, I don't think. But, uh, but they are still having specialized experience. Like you have to go and dig stuff up, okay? And so um, philosophy instead relies on, a lot of it is intuition. So it's when you think about something, what seems plausible <laughs> just from intellectual reflection. And then to the extent that, involves experience, it will be common experience. It will be appealing to experiences that, you know, like pretty much any ordinary person can have, right? And then sort of like think about what are the implications of that, right? Yeah, yeah. The ship of Theseus is an example that you give in the book to kind of make the difference clear, right? Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, the ship of Theseus is, um, you know, it's a um, fictional story. So, the Greek hero Theseus had a ship and he was sailing around, you know, the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, periodically, one of the planks of wood in the ship would get replaced, okay? And so you imagine that over the course of 10 years, each little part of the ship has been replaced at least once. And so then there's a question at the end of the 10 years, does he still have the same ship? Or does he have a new ship? Okay. And uh, so, you know, there's like a good example of a philosophical question. So. It's not a scientific question, right? Because it's like, it's not like the scientists could come and do some experiment to see if it was the same ship, right? Or it's not like if you examined it very closely under a microscope, then that would, that would help you figure out if it was the same ship, right? Because, you know, like all of the facts of the case are stipulated. We're not missing any of the underlying factual evidence. It's just that given all these facts, does it count as the same ship? That's the philosophical question, right? Besides that it's not a scientific question, it's also not just like a completely arbitrary question because you can see how there would be arguments. You can think of logical arguments for why it would or would not be considered the same ship, right? Yeah, so a lot of people in my networks are very science-oriented, which is great. 
But sometimes I feel like when we talk about philosophy, there's just many sort of underlying assumptions that they have that are incorrect or questionable. And sometimes it seems to me that scientists aren't even thinking about some of these questions. And a great example, I found your debate with Robert Sapolsky, right? So you're debating free will with him. And at some point you were describing your counter argument to why you can't just describe something as deterministic because it has a cause. This is sort of refuting free will. But he was like, he didn't even get your language. He was like, at some point, wow, we're really coming from totally different from somewhere totally different, right? He was not even understanding why you're even questioning something like that. Can you talk briefly about that free will and arguments yeah. that Sapolsky made? Yeah, I was kind of trying to figure out what his argument was. And actually a common experience of philosophers is, you know, we give arguments and other people don't. <laughs> so like if I have a debate with someone, there's a pretty good chance that I'm going to be the only one who's giving actual arguments. The other person is just like saying their view. and then. After they hear my arguments, they don't actually respond to it, right? Okay, so anyway, one of my arguments about free will is the denial of free will as a self-defeating position. Okay, and, and what I had in mind was, okay, so if you're denying that there's any free will, then you're, of course, denying that you yourself have free will. And that means that in this very conversation, you don't have any choice about any of the things that you say or that you're thinking. Okay, and then my claim is um, reasoning including reasoning about free will itself is a form of deliberation, right? It's, that is, it's a process of deciding what to believe about free will. But uh, it doesn't make sense to be deliberating about something if you don't think that you have any choice at all about that thing, right? So like we wouldn't sit here deliberating about whether we should change the law of gravity because right? we think we don't have any choice about what the law of gravity is. So, right? <laughs> okay, and so... Anyway, some other people have thought this kind of thing, like Epicurus said, the person who says that everything happens of necessity cannot criticize the person who says that this is not the case because he has to agree that that too happens of necessity. In other words, right, like the free will believers can't help believing in free will, so you can't criticize them for that, right? Uh, sometimes the determinists say, you know, we shouldn't punish criminals retributively. We should try to stop them from repeating their crimes, or we shouldn't try to hurt them because they don't deserve it because they didn't have any control over their actions. But then if you think that, well, then we don't have any control over our actions, so we can't help punishing them. So we can't be blamed for punishing the criminals, right? So anyway, the determinists don't usually really respond to this. So what is logic and what are arguments and propositions and why are those important? I mean, so logic is a branch of philosophy. Sometimes people describe it as um, the science of correct argument or something, or uh, the art of correct reasoning, you know, whether it's an art or a science, there's like, I don't know, some disagreement about whether it's about argument or reasoning. And actually, like what people in logic study is usually like they sort of study some stuff that is, you know, not that, not that interesting <laughs> to like study the properties of formal systems. Okay. But what it originally was supposed to be was like, you know, what's correct reasoning? Like, when does one proposition support another proposition or something like that? Why is this important? Oh, and uh, I think you asked, like, what are arguments or something? Like that. You know, <laughs> arguments are um, attempts to give reasons for believing things or something like that. Like, the way logicians characterize it is, well, um, an argument is a series of statements where one of them is supposed to be supported by the others. Right? And so, like, you start with some statements known as premises, and these are things that the person giving the argument is 
representing as information we can start with. Right? And then sometimes there are some intermediate steps that help you to see how those premises support the conclusion. And then there's a conclusion, which is the thing that the person wants you to accept on the basis of those premises. Yeah, and that's extremely important. I mean, I had a basic education in that. I studied philosophy and economics of a more analytical philosophy branch. Most people in most fields of study don't know about any of that, even though yeah, it's like the foundation. No, no, it's not like they've never heard anyone giving reasons for things, right? Yeah, but yeah. It's like when you study philosophy, you just get hammered with arguments all the time. And like you just get very used to the fact that every time you say something controversial, you're supposed to give arguments or, you know, something. And then um, also you're supposed to confront other people's arguments. And this is a thing that I think people fall down on a lot. Like, like people who haven't studied philosophy, it's very common for them to ignore other people's arguments, right? And just not try to respond. And like in a philosophy paper, there's almost always responses to objections. You give your argument and then you think, but someone who didn't agree with me might say this, and now here's why I think that's mistaken, right? Yeah. But my point is it also matters outside of philosophy, right? If you're in the yeah. sciences, if you're in business, if you just live your life, there's different courses of actions and there's different arguments for and against different courses of actions, right? Yeah, that's right. Just decisions in ordinary life frequently require reasoning. If you're doing something that's sort of not obvious, right? It's not immediately obvious what needs to be done. Then you have to be kind of good at reasoning to reliably figure out what to do. I think a fair amount of the population suffer from dogmatism. And if you suffer from dogmatism like that, that really hurts you in getting to the truth. So like, and if you're doing something practical, then it can just like screw up whatever goal you're trying to get, right? So in other words, like you come up with an idea of what you should do, and then you just look for reasons why that's the good thing to do. And you don't look for reasons against it. And if somebody gives you reasons against it, you look for ways of dismissing that, right? You either ignore what they say, or you just like try to rationalize it away. That's like, okay. And that's a very common thing. I think this might even be like just an innate instinct. We might be genetically programmed to do this crap. But anyway, if you do that, you're just going to like screw yourself up. Okay. Because it's super common that the first idea that appeals to you is wrong. Like just, it's not a problem with you. It's just a problem with a human condition <laughs> the idea like almost all ideas are wrong so you really have to be open to the objection then think about it hard is what is common sense uh, versus what is intuition how would you distinguish these two and why are these important yeah well i guess the meaning of common sense maybe depends on the context like when i'm talking about skepticism and i say that the skeptics reject common sense or something like that i mean that they reject the most plausible assumptions that is, so um, when you consider propositions, different propositions will strike you as being obvious or, you know, plausible or implausible or whatever. Okay. The things, so, you know, like um, the short between any two points is a straight line. When you think about that, it seems pretty obvious, right? And then like, you know, uh, God exists maybe strikes you as not obvious, right? And then I exist strikes you as really, really obvious. Okay. So skeptics are people who are rejecting the propositions with the highest degree of initial plausibility of any propositions you can come up with, right? And uh, not that they're saying those things are false. It's that they're saying that um, we don't know whether they're true, so we have to withhold judgment or something like that, right? What do I mean by an intuition? Um, intuition in philosophy, I should say, this is not the ordinary English use of the word intuition. 
whatever that is, by the way, because I don't know what that is. I don't know what ordinary people mean when they um, say intuition. It does not mean like, you know, like in the phrase women's intuition or whatever. Okay. So in philosophy, um, intuitions are a type of experience that you have where something seems to be the case as a result of purely intellectual reflection, but not as a result of an argument. So it's distinguished from sensory perceptions. Like, you know, I see the table in front of me. That's not an intuition in the, in the usual sense that epistemologists today use the term. Um, but also it's distinguished from conclusions of arguments where like some conclusion seems true in the light of some reasoning that you just did. Rather, it's some proposition just seems true when you think about it immediately, right? Like the shortest path between two points must be a straight line. And when you think about that, that just seems right. Yeah, and then that's important because it seems that people are often rejecting very plausible or very intuitive or very commonsensical kind of things like that you, know, you and I exist. And there is something as objectivity to like the table that is here in front of me um, in favor of something that's just, well, not obvious, right? That yeah. there's any good reason to assume that there's no table in front of me. It seems that many, not sure I would say ordinary people, because people around me aren't super ordinary. Many of them went to school or are like educated, but among many educated people, not necessarily professional philosophers, subjectivism seems to be very common. Right. Sort of the denial of there's something like objective values. Right. So or like evaluative moral statements. Where, where's that come from or what's the motivation behind that? Yeah, well, there are these different forms of um, anti-realism. Right. So there's subjectivism, which is that, well, the truth of evaluative statements depends on our attitudes. Right. So it's like um, what makes murder wrong is just the fact that we disapprove of it or something. Yeah. Like or just like a culture, your culture or something like that. Yeah, like society disapproves of it, or it could just be, it could be relative to the individual. So it's just, if I disapprove of it, then it's wrong for me or something. Okay. Another view is no, uh, value statements are neither true nor false because they're not actually asserting anything. They're just expressing the speaker's feelings or something like that. Okay. And then the third anti-realist view is nihilism, which is mm -hmm. nothing is right or wrong. Nothing is good or bad. I think the right? first one is the most common, right? So people are kind of saying, oh yeah, it's depends on our values as a society, but others are different. So you can't like objectively say that torturing babies for fun is wrong. That's just your own cultural imprint or your own desire or preference or something like that. Yeah. I don't know which of these is the most common. I think um, non-cognitivism has been most popular among philosophers. I don't know about ordinary people. It's probably, it's like it's too sophisticated for ordinary people. So I, ordinary people probably don't even distinguish these three different things. They probably believe a confused yeah. jumble mm -hmm. of all three of them. And like, and what's the motivation? Like if you try to ask people, oh, so why don't you believe in objective values? A lot of what you get is just like, they'll just reiterate the thesis. So they won't give you an actual reason. You know, like, why do you think that? Well, because like there are no absolute moral truths. Yeah. Really, the three stated the thing that I'm asking for a reason for. Like if you go to philosophers, you can get some arguments, but they do strike me as really weak, right? So there's this thing about how there can't be facts that are inherently motivating, right? Or in other words, you couldn't be motivated to do something by having a belief independent of your desires. Motivation always comes from desires. Um, what else? Like another thing that people sometimes say is, oh, well, there's a lot of disagreement about moral propositions. There's a disagreement. There are disagreements about what's morally right or wrong. And so therefore there are no objective truths. Okay. okay that's kind of lame. Maybe the biggest reason is actually 
you know, I just don't see how this fits into the scientific worldview. Like I learned a bunch of stuff from my science classes and uh, none of it had to do with values. And so right, like in my science classes, like and, where, you know, where is it? Right. What's yeah, causing them? It's nowhere in my brain. That's like, yeah. Like you know, I learned that there's everything is made of atoms and uh, atoms don't have value or whatever. So I don't see how there could be value in the world. You know, like there's no scientific theory of, of the creation of goodness or whatever. You yeah. know, it's unscientific. And, they, and there's no like scientific experiment that you can do to detect goodness. Yeah. You know, like somebody wants to figure out if abortion is wrong. You can't design a scientific experiment that detects the wrongness or the rightness. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about physicalism? I think that's more of a position that's more mainstream, probably even within philosophers, right? Definitely with scientists. Yeah, that's right. I think a strong majority position among people in philosophy of mind is, you know, everything is physical, right? So, and then this is, um, you know, in discussions of the relationship between the mind and the body, right? Or the mental and the physical, right? The dominant view is everything is physical. And there are two versions of that, right? One version is, so there is no consciousness. <laughs> and then the other version is, no, no, there's consciousness, but consciousness itself is a physical phenomenon, right? And then usually um, further explanation is, well, it's some kind of brain process. It just is something that your brain is doing. It's not a non-physical extra thing. Okay. Why do people think this? Um, I don't know. I think they have really lame arguments. The view that there, there are no mental states, like this strikes most people as insane. So I should say there are not many people who hold that. That is not a common view. But the people who say that, you know, they don't exactly say it like that, right? They, they might say, so we don't really have beliefs. And you're like, oh, okay, what do you mean by that? And they're like, well, so the completed science of human beings Uh, will explain our behavior by appealing to brain states that people have. And there won't be a clear mapping from brain states to the things that we're calling beliefs, right? So the times when you say so-and-so believes that Paris is in France, there, will be, there are many different people of whom you would say that, and they don't all have the same brain state, okay? The idea is something like that. And the brain state is the real thing that's really explaining the behavior. So like, believes that Paris is in France groups together multiple different physical states and there's not a single physical state. And so belief doesn't really exist or belief that Paris is in France doesn't really exist. What's the alternative version? Like, how would you say people should think about mental states instead? Right. Yeah. The, the alternative, the main alternative to physicalism is dualism as they say, which is the view that there are two separate kinds of things, mental things and physical things, right? And then there are two versions of dualism, which are known as property dualism and substance dualism, right? So property dualism is, well, there's one object like the person, but it has two kinds of properties. So people have physical properties like weighing 150 pounds, and then they also have mental properties like being happy or whatever, or seeing a table, okay? And then the substance dualist view is, No, they're sort of like two distinct objects called the mind and the body, right? Or the brain. And, you know, the brain and the body have physical properties, but not mental properties. And the mind has mental properties, but not physical properties. And then if you think this, usually you also think that they're interacting with each other. 
So mental states can cause brain states and brain states can cause mental states. Yeah, I think that is for many people that are trained in science, including myself, it took me a while to wrap my mind around that. And I think what did a good job doing that was Thomas Nagel's essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? But it's still hard for me to explain to people, like, what do I mean by a mental state? Because people are like, but where is it? Like, it is somewhere in the physical, right? Yeah, but it's also a mental state. Like, the physical <laughs> state is not yeah. the mental state. It's a different thing. Yeah, that, yeah. so that's a really good article. So Thomas Nagel's famous article, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? He asked that question because, you know, bats have... um they have an interesting way of perceiving the world, which is echolocation. And because we don't have echolocation, we don't know what that's like. So that is from the bat's point of view, how does it feel to echolocate things? Is it like seeing things or is it sort of like hearing things or is it some other kind of experience that we can't imagine, right? And the point is, well, there isn't actually any way for us to know. You know, unless somehow we get our brains modified so that we get echolocation faculties added to us. Right? Barring that, we have no way of knowing. In particular, notice that you would not know just by observing the bat's behavior. And you wouldn't know just by looking at its brain. And so like we could do any amount of investigation and like figuring out the physical properties of the bat and we still wouldn't know what it's actually like to have that experience, right? And so that shows you that there's some fact beyond just the physical facts, right? You're like, okay, you know which neurons are firing and you know how it's moving, how the bat is moving around its environment. And then, but what is that like? You still don't know that. Yeah. And I was prodding so much on that discussion because that's very relevant, right? So something like that is very important for you to think about if you do artificial intelligence, for example. So I feel there's a very straight line from very strong physicalism or not thinking about mental states in the way that you just described. Two, there can be artificial general intelligence and that can, you know, kill us all, right? Sort of, can, can you talk a bit about, um, because you've written a couple of blog posts about that, how justified, if at all, is the fear of artificial general intelligence? Does it even make sense to speak of AGI? Yeah. Um, so I guess I want to say, like, first, I can't rule out that somebody could artificially create a conscious being. But I don't think that the things that we're currently doing have any mental states. So like, I don't think ChatGPT has any mental states whatsoever. It's not, right? It's not just that it's dumber than us. It's that it does not have beliefs or desires or perceptions or whatever. It doesn't literally have any of those things. Now, you can sort of like metaphorically talk about that. So like, you know, when you're playing against this chess program, you're like, hey, why did it move this piece here? And then you feel tempted to say something like, well, it's trying to prevent you from capturing its rook or something. I think that's basically a metaphorical use of trying. It's not literally trying to do anything because that's a mental state and it doesn't have a mind, right? Why do I think that? Basically, I buy John Searle's Chinese room argument, right? Which it's something like this. You imagine that there's a program for simulating understanding of Chinese, all right? And so like, you know, native Chinese speakers go and they they chat with the program and they can't tell the difference between its answers and the answers of a normal Chinese speaker. And so then they might be tricked into thinking or else they might conclude um, that the computer is conscious and that it understands all the stuff that it's talking about. Okay. But then you imagine that you put me in a room with a giant rule book 
And the rule book is based on exactly the same algorithm that the computer is using, right? And so then, you know, periodically some Chinese symbols come into the room and then, you know, I look up in the book, the rules, I like do, do a whole bunch of calculations and I pass out the correct Chinese symbols out of a slot in the wall. And unbeknownst to me, people are calling these things that come into the room questions and they're calling the things that I pass out answers questions, right? And the answers that I'm giving are just like those that a native Chinese speaker would give, but I don't understand any of this, right? And so the thought is, well, there's no reason to think that um, any other computer would understand it, right? In the room, I'm acting as a computer. There's no reason to think that the silicon-based computer would understand it either because it doesn't have anything that I don't have when I'm doing that. Yeah, that was also very helpful for, for me to think about that debate. And I think that's still something that is very misunderstood in the debate about AI and AGI. That's why it's so important to think about these questions. Yeah. To go back to the book, what is rationality and why should you think rationally? I mean, there's a couple of senses of rationality, right? There's instrumental rationality, which is basically choosing the correct means of achieving your goals or something according to your beliefs. And then there's epistemic rationality, which is basically forming beliefs in a truth-directed way. Forming beliefs in the way that you would if you're trying to find out the truth, right? And that involves things like basing beliefs on the evidence and not contradicting yourself and not committing logical fallacies and stuff like that. Right. And okay. And why should you do that? Basically, because having true beliefs is really valuable. <laughs> so I think it's intrinsically valuable, but it's also instrumentally valuable in that most of the things that you want to do, you need correct beliefs in order to do them successfully. You know, even such a humble thing as getting a carton of ice cream requires having a lot of true beliefs, it requires like having a correct understanding of like where ice cream is to be located and how stores work and things like that. In philosophical matters, We have like broader questions, but it's also important to have the truth about that. So you have things like, does God exist? And if he does, is there something that he wants me to do? And it's like, it's really important to have the true answers to that. Not the answers that you want to believe, right? If you don't, then you could waste your life, right? Literally. This is why you need to think rationally. Yeah. Many people think these days or, or say that, oh, hasn't behavioral economics proven that people are not rational? Has it proven that? Uh, it has proven that there's certain sort of deviations from correct rational thinking in certain cases. That's, that's correct, right? So, I mean, it doesn't prove that we're irrational across the board because that would be absurd. You know, like if you actually thought that people are irrational just in general, so then there's no way of interpreting them, right? Is that, you know, like an example I give is you see somebody who's looking up a tree and calling snowball, and then you see a white cat up in the tree. What do you think the person is doing? And then you think something like they're trying to get their cat out of the tree. But wait, people are, I heard that people are irrational. <laughs> so maybe what he's trying to do is he's trying to depose the president of Egypt. Because <laughs> if you actually think that people are totally irrational, then that's just as good of an explanation of what the person is trying to do, right? Okay, and that is just to make the point that, look, in general, you assume that people are rational. And everyone does that. And there'd be no way of interpreting anyone ever if you didn't make that assumption. That being said, there are specific kinds of mistakes that people tend to make, right? There's like base rate neglect. Like this is a really common mistake. So you ask somebody to assess how likely something is. And then they just sort of like ignore the background information about how often it happens, right? Like they say, so here's, 
there's this disease, which one in a million people in the population have. But anyway, here are your test results. And then sometimes people will base their belief purely on the test results and not look at how common the disease is in the population. All right, so how common it is in the population is the base rate. So people ignore the base rate. Okay, and that's just, a, that's just an error. That's just wrong. And it gets you hugely wrong results in some cases, right? Yeah, so people are approximately rational and probably especially with nearsighted decisions that they make or sense data around them, right? And with farsighted sense data that are more abstract, they have to use like maths or something like that. Or yeah. these are kind of abstract ideas or concepts that there's just much, that's just much harder to be rational around these, right? So I'm thinking of Brian Kaplan's book, for example, about voter rationality and things like that. Yeah, yeah. When are people more rational? When are they less rational, right? Well, okay, people tend to be pretty good at getting the truth about like things in their immediate environment. Like you ask somebody whether there's a table in front of them, they're really reliable about that. Also, they tend to be fairly good about their own interests when their own interests are very much at stake and getting the correct answer gives them a reward and getting the wrong answer gets them something bad. Then they tend to be more rational. But then, you know, there are other times when they just don't care that much about getting the truth. And so then they don't think very rationally, right? And that's true about politics. And the reason, as Kaplan explains, the reason why people don't care that much about getting the truth about politics is that they don't have any actual influence on politics. Your probability of actually affecting any political decision made by the government is close to zero. So it doesn't actually matter if you have the correct answer. So then people sort of like, they just take the answer that feels good or that the people around them are saying or something. Yeah. One field that thinking clearly about kind of the ethics and arguments and have sort of justified reasons is the law, right? So this is something that my work interjects with a lot, right? So but for background, there's a lot of bottlenecks in many different industries around the world, biotechnology, healthcare, hardware, drones, aeronautics, and stuff like that, or also finance. Right now, there's a big coordinated attempt by forces in the United States government to go against cryptocurrencies. In all these areas, what matters is the law, right? So because there's like certain laws, like by the FDA, you have to ask us for approval to produce a new drug and sell it to anyone. Or uh, the SEC, oh, you have to, if you're selling these things that we think are securities, then you have to go and ask us for permission and, you know, give us a report or several reports each year. So this is why the law is very important for my area of work. So I'd like to talk about your book, Justice Before Law. Yeah. Why did you um, write the book and what is, what is, what's the key argument of it? Yeah, I mean, I wrote the book mostly because I think there are a bunch of people who have like horribly wrong ideas in philosophy of law that are easily refuted, but that they still hold like with near total confidence, right? You know, it was sort of like low hanging fruit for a philosopher, right? Like, a lot of people have dumb ideas that they're totally convinced of that are easily refuted and they just haven't thought of a lot of the arguments. So anyway, and then, and what was my idea? You know, it was called justice before the law is a bit of a pun. Okay. My idea was, you know, agents in the legal system should place justice ahead of the law as it's more important to do justice than it is to be true to the law or put it in slightly different terms. It's more important to do justice than it is to obey the demands of people in power <laughs> because that's what the law is. The law is the demands that were made by powerful people. 
i.e. the legislators. Yeah. Ordinary people have a presumption to follow the law. You say uh, in the book, and I quote, uh, laws are presumptively unjust. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. Sounds amazing, right? <laughs> so what I mean is, well, a law is going to be unjust unless there's a good enough reason for it. Okay, and, and why would that be? So, well, first, you know, like what is, what is justice? I don't know, but, you know, violating people's rights is unjust. And, the, you know, justice is something like giving everyone their due, which includes respecting their rights. Okay. And I also think that there's a general right against harmful coercion. That is, you know, other things being equal, if there are no special circumstances, you're violating somebody's rights if you use force or threaten to use force against them in a way that harms them. Right. So, okay. And laws almost always involve harmful coercion. And why is that? Because if you make a law, generally speaking, there's going to be a punishment attached to that law. And generally speaking, at least someone is going to violate that law. And then the government will have to actually punish that person if they don't, if they find out about it. Um, you know, if they don't punish people, even after they find out that they broke the law, then, you know, the law has no effect and there was no point in making it because everyone's going to ignore it. Okay. So they have to actually punish the person and that will not be voluntary. That will be imposed by force and it will also be harmful. It will be something like they send armed guards to somebody and kidnap them and then lock them in a cage, which we know as arresting and, and incarcerating people. Okay. So I'm not saying that all laws are wrong. I'm saying you need a good reason to do that. If you do that sort of thing to people for no good reason, then you're violating their rights, which is an injustice. Okay. So presumptively means, like presumptively unjust means it's unjust unless there was a good enough reason for it, right? Okay. So there could be good enough reasons. Like there could be a reason that, well, we're protecting the rights of other people. Right. And like, you know, these people who are breaking the law are violating somebody else's rights. So we're justified in using force against them and harming them to punish them for what they did. So like, that's a legitimate justification. Okay. But if the person, if the people were not violating anyone's rights, and then you just send armed guards and kidnap them anyway, and like, and lock them up because, you know, whatever, because doing so, um, satisfies the financial interests of the people who donated money to your campaign, something like that, then, then you're violating people's rights and that's an injustice. Yeah. I mean, in my line of work, what I find very common is that people then give these reasons for these laws that are kind of the intention of the law, but not like the actual outcome, right? So for example, you need to ask us for approval to bring drugs to the market because that's just a way to get safe and effective drugs, right? Yeah. So, and then they typically don't know the arguments against that and kind of showing that it's not effective or not the right outcome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have experience with many different industries, you know, in our society, and there are some that are more heavily regulated than others. So we could say, just to collect empirical evidence, we could ask, well, are the ones that are more heavily regulated generally better? Like, are, are consumers in those industries more happy? Uh, are prices lower? Is there a higher quality? Are there less bad outcomes? The answer to that is usually no, right? It's usually the opposite. So you think about like, I don't know, the computer industry was like, um, it had huge progress and just accomplished amazing things, largely because, uh, well, it arose and advanced too fast for the regulators, for Congress to come in and make a whole bunch of regulations to slow them down, right? Uh, but you think of like really heavily regulated things like medicine, 
uh, yeah, those are like some of the least satisfactory um, industries, right? Where like, people are really unhappy. The things are super expensive. Things are in short supply. You have to wait for a long time. Yeah, same as like uh, your healthcare, government services, <laughs> the court yeah, system, yeah. <laughs> education, yeah, right? So all the industries that are performing the least well are the most regulated. I mean, education, I don't, I don't think is very regulated or higher education, but it is heavily subsidized. So there's, mm -hmm. I think, oh, there's some regulation. Well, it's regulated in that and you don't allow other entrants or it's a screen, extremely hard to get a oh, license to be a university or a school. So it's almost like right, a double right. whammy, right? Right, right. Yeah. There's the accreditation, Yeah, yeah. which you have, you have to get accredited in order to be able to get the subsidies, right? Which is to say, in order for people with students with financial aid to go to your school, if you don't want accreditation, then you could just like sell whatever, but you know, who wants that? But it's heavily subsidized, which I think is a large part. See, the main problem that people have with education is that it's insanely expensive. It's just absurd. And it's just crazy how the prices are ballooning out of control. Okay. The main reason for that is subsidies. Okay. And then the main, because And what I mean by this is, well, the government gives people money, sometimes grants and sometimes loans so that they can go to college and the government will give them a lot of money and um, people would be willing to pay a lot less if there wasn't all this government aid, right? And sometimes there's non-government aid too, other people subsidizing education. Okay. A bunch of people, a bunch of sort of like a liberal Democrats uh, solution to this is we need to have the government give more money. Okay. And like, you can see the logic of this. They're like, well, it's so expensive. People can't afford. So we need the government to come in and give them money. And then that's going to solve the problem, right? They're not thinking about what the reaction to that is going to be, which I know, <laughs> I know the reaction is, is going to be, we can raise our prices now <laughs> even more. We will raise our prices as much as possible, as long as there are people paying it. Okay. So once you realize that, then you realize that the solution cannot be to give more money, <laughs> because we will take all the money, <laughs> like we, we universities, we will take all the money that you can give and we will spend it on useless crap. All right. I'll hire, we will like double the number of administrators, you know, if we have enough money to do that. And then we'll just like, you know, we'll have more academic events where like, you know, we invite somebody to come and like or an audience for an hour and then we go out to dinner and stuff like that. And we'll just have more and more of those and whatever. Yeah. But I mean, back to the irrationality point, it's, we know we have to, we have very good evidence and very good counter arguments against these laws, right? So it's just that it's very irrational to learn much about them and vote based on it, right? Mm -hmm. All it can do maximally is sort of provides the jobs for a couple of like economists or philosophers that sit in university departments making these arguments, right? But for almost everyone else, it just makes no sense to spend a lot of time looking at the evidence and, you know, voting based on that. And also like for political actors, there's very little to gain, you know, because these arguments seem to go against what yeah. sounds good, right? So it doesn't sound good yeah. that you should cut education subsidies and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, like it sounds like I'm blaming people, but when you think about how the system works, you realize that everybody is sort of behaving rationally. Not really any, any no one you can blame in particular, right? So you're like, okay, so yeah, these, there are these academics who are like, hey, you know, regulations are kind of bad. And by the way, there are, there are serious studies in economics of the effects of regulations. There have been many studies of many different regulations. And then there are a few um, articles that talk about regulation in general, and they typically find that regulations are harmful. 
okay, that they make, they make products worse for the consumers, they raise the prices, you know, create less competition or things like that, uh, slow down economic growth. Overall, there's just like a huge drag on the economy. But anyway, okay, so those people are, they're doing their jobs. The economists are trying to figure that out. Okay, but then you're like, oh, well, what about the, the voters? The voters are like, well, you know, um, let's see, what is my chance of changing the outcome of the next election? What's well, around one in 10 million or something like that. So how much time am I going to spend trying to figure out what the correct policies are on any of the dozens of different issues that are being discussed, right? And there are, like, there are many more issues that are not even being discussed, okay? How much time am I going to spend on that? And the answer is, you know, you know, a couple hours over the course of the campaign. And the time is going to be spent actually basically just listening to sound bites or listening to commentators on TV who also don't know anything, elaborating. That's how I'm going to spend my time because that's entertaining. And reading articles from professional economists is not entertaining. And since I have a one in 10 million chance of making any difference whatsoever, it doesn't make any sense for me to try to actually figure out what the truth is. Now, people are not actually thinking that explicitly to themselves, but it's sort of in the back, in the background, in the back of their minds, they know they're not going to have any effect. And that's why they don't care that much about finding out the truth. So anyway, but then you're like, okay, so the politicians are being bad, but you're like, no, they're not. Because if the politicians try to do the thing that's actually good, they will be voted out. They will be kicked out and replaced by somebody who will do the thing that sounds good. And so they, in a sense, they don't have any choice. And like, you know, and they have to get money for their campaigns. They have to collect money from the special interest groups. Otherwise, they will be kicked out. Okay, so then you're like, oh, so special interest groups are bad. They should stop hiring lobbyists. But the thing is, like, if you're running a company, if you don't hire lobbyists, your competitors will still do so. So then you will lose, right? And, you know, your job is, like, to make money for your company and keep your company in business. So if you're a big company, you kind of have to play the game and try to influence legislation to your benefit. And so it's sort of like we're just trapped in the system. It's like nobody really has a thing that they can do about it. Yeah, yeah. Like we, we have established the notion that there's unjust laws and they're very costly. Can you talk for a bit just to track back a bit about legal relativism or legal positivism? Yeah. In the book, I had the idea that, well, some, some people, I guess, I guess some people would say, you know, there aren't really facts about justice independent of the law. So you humor your thesis that justice is more important than fidelity to the law doesn't make sense. You know, it's just like the law determines what's just. Now, I don't think there are a lot of philosophers who think that, but there might be, uh, I think there might be judges who think that there might be ordinary people, maybe lawyers. So originalists, we should do what's in the law and nothing else. Yeah. Well, it depends upon whether the original founders had good ideas or not. If they did, then maybe we should follow their ideas. What's wrong with this? Um, I don't, you know, just like take an obvious thought experiment, like, you know, you've run into a hermit who is living in some deserted area, which is outside the jurisdiction of any government. Maybe it's like on an uncharted island or something. Okay. And like, he's built a hut and he's got like some tools that he made and stuff like that. And okay. But you happen to find him and, um, you just like start taking his stuff, right? <laughs> and then you spray graffiti on his hut. And then, well, like if there are no, um, if there are no moral facts or if there are no rights independent of the law, then maybe you can like beat the crap out of him because I think, you know, there, there won't be anything wrong with that. Um, Okay. Anyway, like most people can see that these things are wrong, right? And like, okay, so, you know, you can't beat them up. 
Okay, so that at least shows that there's something like a right to be free from coercion that's independent of the law, right? Because there's no law on the island because there's only one herb. And then like, okay, and then there's even property rights because it looks like you can't just take his stuff. You can't go like, hey, oh, here's a nice tool that the hermit made. I'm just going to take it with me, right? Yeah. And to note that also kind of a direct line from what you explained before about moral realism, right? So that it's such a thing as rights that are objective, right? So you just don't have the right. It's a moral constraint on your actions against another person, right? You can't like coerce a person against their will, the hermit, right? So therefore, it also follows that laws that are not moral, right, or just aren't good laws. They're unjust laws. And that also leads then to the conclusion that you don't have to, or can you specify the conditions under which you should and should not follow unjust laws? Yeah, well, probably depends on what the law is. Like, does it require you to do something that's actually immoral or only something that's useless? Um, and can you get away with it? So if the law itself is wrong, you know, and if you can get away with violating it, then violate it. <laughs> and then like, part of my discussion, part, part of what the book discusses is like, well, how should other agents who are in the justice system react? So like, you know, what, oh, should the police arrest you? And the answer is basically no. Like, I think, well, I think people own their bodies and therefore they have the right to use recreational drugs if they want to. Okay, we could have a longer discussion about that, but suppose that, that, that I'm right about that. Um, okay, so then if you're a police officer and then you see somebody using illegal drugs, what should you do? Well, you should pretend that you did not see them, right? And you know, if you're, if you're a good person, you should maybe advise them on how to avoid being seen by other police so that they won't get in trouble. Okay, now, um, very few police will actually do that. Most of them would arrest you. Okay, so anyway, so then they turn you over to the courts. Right? And then, so what should the prosecutor do? The prosecutor should drop the charges, right? Or just not file charges because it's unjust to punish the person for exercising their right to control their own body. Okay, but most, most prosecutors will not do that because they don't care about justice and they just care about winning. And so they will just file charges if they think they can win. Okay, so it goes to court. And then like, what should the jury do? The jury should vote to acquit, you know, regardless of what the evidence is. Okay, and why? Because it's unjust to be punished for something that wasn't wrong, right? Unjust to, to be punished for just exercising your right of control over your own body. If you vote to convict the person, then... You're causing them to suffer an unjust punishment, which is wrong. And generally, you should not cause unjust harm to other people knowingly. So you got to acquit because that's the only way to not cause unjust harm to them. Okay. And then if you're the judge in the case, what should you do? Well, basically, you should try to give them the minimum sentence that you possibly can. Right. That won't immediately be overturned on appeal. Yeah, that's um, kind of conflicting with many existing legal norms or for norms in the legal field. Can you talk a bit more about sort of some of these norms that you're very strongly criticizing or some of the objections yeah. that you encounter? Yeah, I mean, virtually no one, especially in the legal profession, agrees with all that stuff that I said. So like, uh-huh, and many of them would be outraged. And then this is like, this is a, an example of what I was talking about when I said there are people who have totally indefensible views that they hold with near total confidence, right? So like you, you could get a bunch of people, you get lawyers or judges saying, yeah, that's totally indefensible. Humor is like a horrible person who's promoting lawless behavior or whatever. Okay, but then, you know, if you ask, oh, okay, wow. So you've got some really great arguments for why you have to enforce unjust laws, right? 
And then, you know, they'll, they'll be like, yeah, I've got some really great argument. Okay. What are they? And they'll say some stupid thing. Like it's really bad if uh, outcomes aren't predictable, but okay, wait, first we have to have rule of law, the rule of law. Oh, okay. What is the rule of law? Well, the rule of law is that like you always enforce the law. Okay. So you're just begging the question, right? Why do we have to have rule of law? Like, well, because otherwise there will be like unpredictability. And in order for people to plan their actions, they have to be able to predict like what things will and won't be punished by the law. Right. Okay. So let me give you an example. Let me get like this alternative example. There's like, um, you know, there's a bunch of hoodlums who are going around beating up gay people and you're out with one of your friends who happens to be gay. And then you run into these hoodlums and they're like, Hey, is your friend gay? Okay. Okay. What should you do? <laughs> Obviously you should say no. Yeah, right. As a matter of fact, you know, I met his girlfriend and he has 12 children. So <laughs> whatever. Nothing, not gay at all. Okay. So get out. Get out of here. Leave us alone. Okay. But wait, let me add a further piece of information. Imagine that the, this gang of hoodlums has in fact been beating up a lot of gay people. And like most of the time when they run into a gay person, they beat him up. So if you say no, he's not gay, and then he doesn't get beaten up, that reduces the predictability of encounters with the gang. So you got to say yes, so that it'll be more predictable, so he'll get beaten up, right? Okay, that's just like what they're saying, right? Like, okay, there are these drug users who don't deserve to be thrown in jail any more than your friend deserves to be beaten up. Like, it's, it's also unjust. And by the way, being thrown in jail is way worse than being beaten up. Because like, they'll probably be beaten up in jail in addition to losing years of their life, okay? And, you know, possibly having their whole life thrown off track. And anyway, so, yeah, okay. But look, you know, we have to have it be predictable what the outcome is when the government prosecutes you for drug use, right? Yeah, if the outcome is predictably bad, or predictably unjust. Yeah, like, is it better to have predictable un injustice or unpredictable justice, right? Like... You know, sometimes you get justice and sometimes you get injustice or you always get injustice, right? which is better. But also the justice system right now is not predictable, right? I mean, yeah, that's right. Like you have unpredictability for various other reasons, right? The first of which is that, well, most crimes are unsolved. Most crimes people get away with. So like when you commit a crime, you can't predict whether you'll be arrested at all. There's also unpredictability about people's judgments of the facts. Right. So like different juries might disagree about whether the person is factually guilty, i.e. whether they actually did the thing. And nobody says that because of that, you have to vote to convict if you think that most other people would vote to convict. No one thinks that. Like if you think the person was innocent, but most other people would think that they're guilty, you're still supposed to vote not guilty. You're not supposed to increase predictability by agreeing with other people. So anyway, there's just like a bunch of stupid things that people say. Okay. So another thing people say is, well, you know, when you get on a jury, you make a promise to enforce the law as given to you, as explained to you by the judge, right? And, uh, and that's true, by the way. Uh, if you don't agree to do that, then they kick you off the jury, which is a good tip for if you want to get out of jury service. Or, but anyway, okay, so you made a promise. You don't want to break a promise, do you? Right? And it's like, and, you know, you'd be lying to the government or whatever. <laughs> okay. Well, can you ever break promises? I don't know. If you have to break a promise to prevent somebody from being beaten up unjustly and very harmfully, should you break the promise? Yes. How about if it's a promise to that, to the gang that's threatening to beat up your friend, right? So the gang who's threatening to beat up your friend, 
they say, okay, I want you to promise that you're going to tell us the truth about this. Is your friend gay? Okay. So, and then like, he, they make you promise to tell the truth. Now, should you keep the promise or should you lie to them? It's like, obviously you should lie to them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you know about, uh, Gary Gensler? Not sure. Yeah. He's, uh, the head of the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. The one that's in charge right now of regulating the crypto industry. And so many listeners who are in the crypto industry, they're very familiar with that line of argument that he keeps making. This is the law. This isn't optional and you have to follow it. And at the same yeah. time, it's totally unpredictable. Like he hasn't been like clarifying what he sees as securities. Right. And he's making, it's just very obvious, at least for people in my industry, that's like a pure power play. Right. He wants to advance himself politically. Um, yeah. you know, something we can talk about a lot. Weird about something yeah. weird about that too, because like he's not an elected official. Exactly. Like so he can't make the law. And so yeah. what he's doing is interpreting a law that was made by Congress, but Congress didn't know about cryptocurrency. So Exactly. Like, Which kind of brings me to that question that I wanted to ask. Many of these laws, securities laws or whatever, they're from like nineteen thirty three. I mean, they've been updated a couple of times since, but you know, they're also like from the seventies or something like that. What you could argue with is, oh, these laws we got like through the democratic process and stuff like that. Right. So, you know, we should follow like some version of it at least, or use the democratic process and like reform to kind of get the right laws or kind of agree on a set of laws that we all need to agree to. Does that sound like a correct line of reasoning to you? Oh, uh. Like it depends. Like, like there are some things I think should be beyond the control of the democratic process, right? Like I don't think that um, the majority should be able to just vote to violate the rights of the minority. But now when, when it comes to cryptocurrency, are they, and I don't know what the rights are. <laughs> I don't even know what the regulations are. Well, of trade and of exchange, right? So you freely, the yeah. two of us are exchanging. Yeah. We're having a contract between each other. It's freedom of contract, right? And yeah, SEC, yeah. your government regulators are basically saying, oh, if you, Mike and Nicholas, you want to do that, you have to ask us for permission. Yeah, probably we should just like let the people in the industry evolve the norms that they want, right? And, uh, and you know, you can always contract out of it. It's like, you know, if you want to make a trade with somebody with some different understanding, you can write down the different understanding that you want or something. You know, like generally about the democratic process, it's like, um, you know, imagine, so this is a, this is an analogy that I might tell, imagine that there's like five people, you know, having dinner. Okay. And then at the, you know, we're at a restaurant or something. Then at the end of the dinner, we have a discussion about who should pay the bill. Right. And then like, you know, somebody says, Hey, Mike Kimmer should pay for everyone. Right. And I go, well, I don't want to pay for everyone. Oh, well, I'm not doing that. And then they go, well, let's take a vote. And then there's like three people at the table say, yeah, Mike should pay for everyone. And just and I I don't want to. Now am I obligated to pay for everyone? No, I don't think so. Right, but it's a majority. The majority said it. There was more of them than there is of me. Right? Like okay, now now do they have the right to just like forcibly take my money and make me pay because there's more of them? Like it doesn't seem right. I mean that would also lead into the arguments you make and the problem of political authority. You know, where someone would say, well, what if we establish a process beforehand, right? By which we take a vote and whatever, whatever that you agree to because of a social contract and this and that. I don't want to go too much into that. It's just to point people in the direction of the problem of political authority, which uh, 
is an absolutely fantastic book going into that line of thinking. But to go back to the legal question, so um, what do you say to the argument of similar to the predictability of like the cohesiveness, right? So the argument is basically saying, well, we need to agree like on one set of rules or, or one set of um, regulatory constraints, because otherwise we don't have a functioning, scalable, large market in the United States or something like that, right? So we need like one set of rules that everyone, even though, you know, it's violating the rights of some people, because the outcome of that is so strong as a result that, that we need to have sort of this unregulated set of officials and follow these outdated laws and stuff. Well... Yeah, we could have one set of rules. The rules could be like respect everyone's rights. <laughs> like the rule could be, you know, like you're allowed to make contracts and you have to keep your promises or whatever. Like, why not just have the general rules that we have for all other interactions? I'm not sure that we need special rules just for cryptocurrency or whatever, right? Yeah. But it's also a very good argument. Like there are rules that are very commonsensical and probably any legal system would have like against fraud and against like violating people's rights, like the basic yeah. stuff. Um, so you don't need extra. It's actually something that I was wondering because there seems to be the legal norm of innocent until proven guilty, right? Uh, it seems to me when it comes to government regulation, the opposite is true, right? You're guilty until proven innocent, right? So we're assuming you're a bad person, you're a terrorist, you're a scammer, you're committing fraud <laughs> until you like go to us and get like a permission slip that you have to apply to for like 10 years. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, like these these things where you have to get a license, you have to get some kind of permission from the government. Like that's just a way of like restricting competition, you know, at which drives up prices and lowers quality. And by the way, there have been serious academic studies of the effect of licensing, right? It generally does not increase quality, right? And it's not just like a bunch of right-wing people who are saying that, okay? Because that was like, you know, that conclusion came out of a study commissioned by the Obama administration, right? Where they say, yeah, it usually doesn't increase quality, actually. Um, and, and it does definitely increase prices and nobody disagrees about that. So I think where you can get people through some of these arguments, some rational, well-meaning people, and I think, you know, your work is so fascinating to me because you're able to make the arguments so clear and also look at sort of the most common sense ones or the ones, the most sort of agreeable premises that might lead to a surprising conclusion. Where they where then usually end or where it's much harder to convince people is making them see alternatives, right? So how could you do it differently, right? So by sort of asking these questions, coming to these conclusions, you would have to do things very differently. So what's kind of your thinking when it comes to creating alternatives, kind of to following unjust laws or to sort of get better laws or something like that? Yeah, I mean, like, so they sort of, you know, ultimate someday... Uh, whatever ideal society goal would be you know, first, like we should privatize the police, right? Meaning we could have private security guard companies providing security for different neighborhoods and apartment complexes and whatever, instead of government police. And then uh, we should privatize the courts, right? Meaning that when people have a dispute, instead of going to a government court, they should go to an arbitration company and there could be multiple competing arbitration companies. Both of these things exist. By the way, there are more private security guards in the country than there are government police. Yeah. When did you hear about a security guard like murdering a person, right? Like, you know, or like beating the crap out of somebody just, you know, just for the heck of it. And then, you know, you might wonder, okay, but we need the government to make the laws right. 
And then uh, my ideal solution would be um, we could have, well, law should be common law rather than legislative law. So common law is basically law that's made by judges. Or it's made by people who are resolving particular disputes, right? So like one person has done something that another person finds to be bad, right? Or let me rephrase that. One person claims that another person has done something bad and the second person doesn't agree that he did something bad. <laughs> so then they take their dispute to an arbitrator and then the arbitrator makes some decision and then writes some explanation for his decision. And then in future cases that are similar to that, um, other judge, judge slash arbitrators look at that explanation and use that as part of the basis for their decision. That's the idea of precedent. That's where common law comes from. And it used to be that most law was common law. Like there's just a huge body of this doctrine that has come up from judges ma um, making decisions in particular cases. Now, I think maybe most law is regulatory law, not even statutory. So like the so the legislature makes some statutes, but basically the statute then creates a regulatory agency. And then the regulatory agency makes us tons and tons of little tiny niggling rules, right? So anyway, okay. Why is common law better? So one thing is the people who are making the decisions, they know the details of a particular case. And there are also people who have experience. They have experience with resolving disputes. And so they're probably going to be wiser. Uh, also, if you, have a, if you have a system of competing arbitrators, then they, they have an incentive to try to resolve disputes in a way that looks fair to most observers. If you have a monopolistic government system, then they don't really care. It's like nothing is, it's like, you know, you have to go to them. Right? You don't have an alternative, right? So, okay, so that's one thing. Another thing is like in, the, in our current system, there's, there are incentives for special interest groups, incentives and mechanisms for special interest groups to take over and like influence the law in their favor. So like they give money to particular campaigns to try to get somebody elected who will make laws favorable to them. Uh, and that doesn't really happen with common law because you could try to bribe the judge in a particular case. And if it's a corrupt judge, then you could succeed in getting your way. But that only changes that case. That doesn't make everyone else have to now follow a different rule. But that's a couple of things about why that's better. Yeah, yeah. There's a point also listeners to episode seven with Tom W. Bell, who's basically talking about a common law-based polycentric legal system, which basically is private law plus common law, right? So when you want a regulator or regulation for an industry, you can have private arbitration or, or private regulatory bodies or agencies, maybe even like insurance companies, right? So it's, so it's an idea that we're implementing in Prospera, where I live in Honduras, right? So the idea is that insurance companies they have an incentive to assess the business risk of any kind of regulation correctly, right? Because they don't want you to mess up. They don't have to pay. And they also don't want you to not be able to do anything. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be a paying or continuing customer. So just to point listeners to some alternatives. And there's really a lot we could do or try out, right? Sort of seeing law more as a product, something that can be provided privately, but also regulation to businesses as a product, right? Sort of, and have a more flexible system where people can self opt into a different set, some set of regulations, right? So it's basically right. a contract between right. the you know, customer and the buyer and 
you know, um, if you're under these regulations, I trust you. If you're not, if you're not like certified by whatever, whatever, then I don't do business with you. You know, there's yeah. many examples of markets that yeah. can work like that. So, you know, like maybe we should address things that people say about why you need regulations, right? So like yeah. people say, oh, well, you know, people will have unsafe products. If, if we didn't have product safety regulations, then there'd be all these products that would be killing people. And like a private alternative is, well, there could be a private organization that um, certifies things as being safe. And then like, if there was a problem with unsafe products, then consumers would look for the products that were certified. Right? And you might think, oh, okay, sure. But why is that better than the government? Like, that's just what the government is doing, right? But it's different because the government can make capricious regulations. Like they can make regulations that don't have anything to do with the safety that just have to do with like supporting one, one business that donated money the, to a government official over another one. Uh, and then they, they just keep going, on, right? If the private agency that was doing this, if they were making rules that were unrelated to safety, then like, well, why would anybody pay attention to it? In our current system, well, you have no choice because like they will send men with guns after you if you don't follow the regulations. Could go way uh, deeper into some of these regulatory discussions. <laughs> In the interest of time, and we don't have too much time to talk about the last book that I promised listeners to talk about, The Problem of Political Authority, but I want to talk about sort of the part where you talk about the psychological situation that you're in with people in power, right? So you gave the example of private security forces versus police, right? So, you know, when you're a monopoly provider and you literally have like immunity, that just changes your behavior, right? Can you talk yeah. about that and the psychology of authority? Who would think that, you know, <laughs> who would think that giving people total power would corrupt them? I don't know. Everyone, anyone who's ever observed. <laughs> yeah. So like, so in our current system, you know, as, as many people have become aware of and frustrated with, it's really hard to sue the police if they abuse you. It's not impossible. They have qualified immunity, which basically just means like, hey, it's really hard to sue them. <laughs> like you have to, you have to meet a pretty high standard. Like they have to have done something like really obviously bad, right? But also judges and prosecutors have absolute immunity, meaning even if they did something that's totally obviously bad and they totally admitted it, like, you know, the judge could be on camera saying, yeah, like I deliberately punished this guy, <laughs> whatever, just because like I hate innocent people. <laughs> like, or you know, the prosecutor could say, yeah, I knew this guy was innocent, but I just like him hate innocent people. So I just sent him to jail. And I, I totally fabricated the evidence, whatever. And you can't sue him. Absolute immunity doesn't matter. Okay. So anyway, so if you have that kind of system that, hmm, I wonder what would happen. <laughs> like, well, then they don't care about, about this Okay. Now, well, they can be prosecuted. Okay. But that would require another prosecutor to prosecute the first prosecutor, which they will never do. Prosecutors will stick together. They're not going to prosecute another prosecutor. They're always going to be like, oh, well, I could understand why you would do that. <laughs> so, right. So anyway, like this is a big difference between how things work on the free market and how things work with government. Like the government just gives itself like amazing privileges and then they could do what they want. Right. And then they will. I don't know if I answered your question because I started rambling. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, what I just maybe a quote from you, right? So uh, something that you mentioned is that power or being in a position of power reduces one's capacity for empathy, right? 
the same motives of private individuals do violate the rights of others sometimes. They're very selfish or they're psychopathic or whatever. Um, but the same motives who lead private individuals to violate the right of others also exist in the hearts and minds of those who take up positions in government, right? Yeah. So actually, people who end up being in positions of power might actually be less virtuous and average than others in society because they deliberately seek power, right? Yeah. Over the alternative of, you know, providing a good service or value to customers in the market and kind of yeah. be judged by the market. I mean, it's a puzzle to me why there are many people who are a lot more suspicious of business people than of the government. I mean, like politicians are widely trusted, yet somehow the government is trusted. Politicians are the ones who run the government. Like everybody knows that politicians are liars. Nobody thinks that politicians are more virtuous than the average person, right? Or almost no one. Like they're obviously less virtuous, right? They're more dishonest. They're more likely to get in these scandals or whatever. They're cheating on their wife or whatever. Then, you know, they're um, in the, these schemes to make money, you know, by insider trading or whatever, or taking bribes or things like that. Okay, anyway, um, they're probably less less virtuous than the average person, you would not be surprised by that, right? Because like, well, the people in power are the people who love power. And like ordinary normal people or virtuous people are typically not power mongers. And therefore, they're not willing to do whatever it takes to get into power. And so they're not going to get into power. <laughs> okay. And then, you know, and then the suspicions that people have about business people like, oh, they're all greedy. Well, why don't you think the same about the people in the government? Okay, so it's true that business people are greedy. They like money, right? <laughs> I mean, to put it like, you know, less evaluatively, business people like money. Okay, that's why they're doing the business. Okay, and politicians like power. Which one of these is better? Neither of these is super great, but anyway, loving money is better than loving power in my view, right? And by the way, the politicians probably also love money. It's just that they're not good at getting it. It's like what you have to do to get money in the business world is, well, you do have to have some skills. You know, you have to be able to like not waste resources and you have to be able to deliver, just like make stuff get done or you're not going to be able to get the money. But in the, in the government world, you need a different set of skills, which is you need the skill of hoodwinking people, basically. <laughs> so you need this, the skill of winning a popularity contest with specifically with uninformed people. Right, like dumb people who are who will only look at a few sound bites, okay, because that's what the electorate is. So, um, yeah, the second thing selects for a less impressive class of people, right? Less morally impressive. Yeah, I wonder where, where that's coming from. Robin Hanson would say something about like about the sacred sort of government versus politicians, um, and there's something to our just deference or obedience to authority, right? So back to the incentives, there's just no incentive to kind of ask the question that you're asking yourself in your position. And because your vote wouldn't change anything, yeah, you might leave the country or go somewhere else and there's not many options. So, you know, you don't have an incentive to get to these insights instead of just defer to authority, right? I mean, everybody knows that they don't have any control over the government. And though people who are exposed to sort of pro-democracy propaganda in America like to say things that make it sound like they think you have control. Like, oh, the government is accountable to us. Every vote matters. They have to go out and vote because every vote matters. No, it doesn't. No vote matters, actually. <laughs> it doesn't matter. 
like a million votes matter, right? When you say this, people are like, but if everybody votes differently, there will be different politicians in office. That's true. If you can, if you can change a million people's votes, then you can change the outcome. Sadly, you can't do that. So what's the hope? What's the way to actually effectuate change? I remember you said somewhere on a podcast, maybe that the way ideas or we make moral progress or, you know, have more correct ideas that get implemented is through entrepreneurs that take some of these ideas and build different things or institutions. Do I remember that correctly? Or do you have a... Um, I don't know. I've been on a lot of podcasts. But yeah, I mean, one thing is like, um, well, I try to change people's minds, you know, <laughs> because like, yeah, part of the problem is that people have false beliefs. As we we're discussing, like, well, it's hard to correct people's false beliefs because they don't have an incentive to form correct beliefs. But, you know, like maybe um, if you have... Uh, if you have discussions that are kind of entertaining, like, and maybe it's entertaining, I don't know, that you can get people to listen and, you know, and learn some things. But the other thing is like, well, yeah, it's great to um, just like try to start a competing system, right? And, you know, like maybe, maybe in a small area, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I did, right? So I read stuff by you a lot and by other philosophers and economists. And I was like, hey, the way we're doing things right now, that just doesn't work. And my example was like healthcare and COVID and like much, many public health disasters and just kind of trying, starting to understand sort of that flawed regulatory paradigm. And then I was like, what can we do? Well, we can go to other places, right? So we can, and my passion and I think makes a great impact is creating new products. And that is through startups and through technology these drugs, we can just go to other places where we can sometimes even, you know, influence or get sort of a better, better regulatory system or paradigm, right? It's also quite normal, right? Many multinational companies do that anyway, right? So they're incorporating their business offshore just because it would be totally impractical to do it otherwise. They have entities in other places. They do clinical drug trials or medical tourism in other countries just because that's way cheaper. So, you know, there's a lot we can do. And um, if we make this, you know, a large enough trend, reduce the costs and barriers to entry for some of these alternatives and, you know, show that common law-based polycentric legal systems can work, can lead to prosperous societies and a strong economy and build great businesses as a result, then maybe we can also effectuate and influence broader change in other jurisdictions or in... Yeah, yeah. No, I think like um, the sort of libertarian approach is to try to win by competition, to set up a competing alternative. Yeah. And like, un unfortunately, you know, you may have to go to, you know, an island <laughs> uh, in order to get away from the federal government, right? Uh, in order to be allowed to do your thing. Like some, some of this is happening. Like they say, there, there are a few particular industries that are um, particularly terrible, where people are particularly unhappy and they just have ridiculous costs. Like I, I think ridiculous cost is like the biggest thing. So I would mention healthcare, education, and uh, legal services, right? And there is some amount of competition in all of these. Actually, like I'm waiting, I'm waiting for education to be replaced. Maybe somebody could start a school. Yeah, um, I mean the ch challenge there is the crowding out effect, right? So it's hard to harder to compete with free, right? So typically you don't get like your tax money back that you paid for the school, so you have to pay like extra for private schools or private tutoring and this and that. I think there are some reforms and some changes in places like Arizona and stuff like that. So right. also, I think there's a um, downward trend when it comes to college, um, college admissions and stuff like that. Um, 
So yeah, more trend meaning they're admitting fewer people. Or? No, I mean I meant to say enrollments. <laughs> so fewer people want to even go to college. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I keep waiting for um, the education industry to be um, revolutionized by technological advances or something, because that's the sort of thing that could just like totally change things, right? Yeah, yeah. By AI, you could have like a humor bot that you could talk to. Yeah, right. I mean, oh, maybe maybe somebody will start some low cost education uh, <laughs> alternative. You know, the the problem is that what people want is not actually the knowledge. <laughs> if they wanted the knowledge, then you could easily provide it for like one thousandth of the price, right, or or less. Um, but what they actually want is prestige. And so like, it's really hard to get that. It's hard to come up with the alternative that has prestige, you know, in, in comparison with a university that's been around for 200 years. Yeah. That makes it very hard. Um, also to draw some more lessons for the entrepreneurs listening. I mean, what we learned from this conversation was to think clearly because otherwise you're not going to be as effective in solving the problem that you're trying to solve. Right. Second, when you're hamstrung or held back by laws, right? So, you know, you want to have or develop an insight into, is this for a good reason or are these laws kind of unjust for some reason, right? And then you want to look into alternatives, right? So you need to think very hard about, are these alternatives better than the existing system, right? And are they ethical, right? Because if you're not, then go for it, right? So it's okay to... Um, well, find a ra- ways around unjust laws to and find alternatives where you can do it. It's not smart and not wise to break laws, right? In a business context, right? Because you want to be around for a couple of decades. So if you explicitly like, break in a law explicitly, that's just not good for you and your business because people can go after you. So you need to be kind of smart to find the kinds of loopholes that could allow you your innovation by going to new jurisdictions. Sometimes it's possible in the United States. We had several episodes in this podcast with regulatory hackers, with Dan Epstein, for example, who were talking about how to kind of work through the legal process or just be faster than the regulators, kind of by defining your category before they can, which is kind of how we got the internet. Hopefully we can get crypto this way. You kind of just have this as a strategy of just innovating faster or sort of defining your category before regulators can do and read Michael Humer's books to get yeah, deeper that's, on that's all the these. That's main important thing. That's the main important thing is to buy my books, you know. <laughs> Not to read it, but to buy it. First buy it. And then Just... once you bought it, yeah, you know, probably need it. Yeah, I can highly recommend to any listener to start in that order because I think knowledge, reality, and value really kind of unlocked it for me in terms of, I mean, I studied that, some of that stuff before, but it was like, all right, now I feel a lot, just this veil of confusion that's, uh, just a bit lifted and then you can go into some of the other topics with a very with a much with a clearer so thanks michael for coming on the show this was it was absolutely fascinating anything else you me. want to give listeners on the way that you want to point out about your work or where to find you oh um you know i have a blog called fake news uh, on substack it's f-a-k-e-n-o-u-s dot substack dot com fantastic fake news michael humor thank you so much for coming on the show Thanks for having me. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
a laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.